0: Welcome to the Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast. The show covering all things health, wellness, culture, and more. The show for all of us who aren't old, we're better. Each week, we'll interview superstars, experts, and ordinary people doing extraordinary things, all related to this wonderful experience of getting better, not just older. Now, here's your host, the award winning Paul Vogelzang.
1: Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Not Old Better Show Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast. I'm Paul Vogelzang. And you know, as we stand on this precipice of America's 250th anniversary, the air around us is just thick with the sparks of cultural contention. But today, We're going to ask a pivotal question of our guest, our Smithsonian associate guest. How can we lower the temperature of this conversation? In this episode, we're diving into the undercurrents of America's grand narrative with none other than returning guest, audience favorite, Smithsonian associate Clay Jenkinson, a public humanities scholar who wields the past not as a weapon, but as a lantern in the murky debates of the present. Clay Jenkinson will be appearing at Smithsonian Associates coming up, so please check out our website and show notes today for more details. The title of Clay Jenkinson's presentation via Zoom is The Culture Wars, How Can We Lower the Temperature? Clay Jenkinson's presentation and our conversation today will be rich with his wisdom. He's a senior Seasoned historian. He's got this amazing announcement to share with us today. I just invite you to consider the full spectrum of everything Clay Jenkinson has to tell you, especially about America these days the valor and the vices, the triumphs and the tribulations, as Clay likes to put it, warts and all. You know, as statues fall all around us and the legacies of figures like Theodore Roosevelt and Thomas Jefferson, who Clay Jenkinson will talk about today, warts and all. These wonderful members of America's past face the tides of modern scrutiny. Clay Jenkinson will offer us a voice of moderation. He beckons us away from the extremes of glorification and vilification to a place where we can engage with our history, all of it, with honesty and grace. Clay Jenkinson, challenges us today to see the removal of a statue not as an erasure, but as a conversation and a conversation starter to view the controversies surrounding America, not as battles, but as growing pains of a democracy still striving towards its ideals. So as we prepare to mark this milestone in our nation's history, 250th anniversary again, just let us approach today's conversation with both the reverence and the critical eye that it deserves. Let's explore the pasts to cool the fires of division and fan the flames of understanding. Please stay tuned as we navigate the heated corridors of America's past and present. We're going to seek today to cool those waters. We're going to build some consensus. We're going to understand mutual respect. This is the Not Old Better Show Smithsonian Associates Interview Series, and I'm ready to move along this journey with you. Let's let the conversation begin. Please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better Show Smithsonian Associates interview series, Clay Jenkinson. Clay Jenkinson, welcome back to the program.
2: So glad to be here. You know, I've, um, we're get, this is getting to be an interesting habit we've got. <laughs> I love
1: it. I do too. I, I have to tell you, my wife and I are big. PBS fans and we were watching Ken Burns' as American Buffalo and we saw Clay Jenkinson featured there and I just thought, you know, that's somebody I've talked to a couple times. So congratulations on that, by the way. Great oh, work. I
2: so uh, fortunate to be in it. You know, it's um, you know Ken Burns is uh, an amazing man as, as we all know, and he yep. can he can anyone he wants um, will agree to an interview with him, and so the fact that he sometimes wants to talk with me um, is just um delightful. And so he once told me, You can be in my films as long as you know how to stick the landing. You know, say what you're going to say. <laughs> Stop. So we edit it.
1: Oh, that's great. That's really great. <laughs> Good for you. Well, again, congrats and uh on, on all your work. We're going to talk today about your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation titled The Culture Wars: How Can We Lower the Temperature? I think the timing. Is just perfect for this, Glay Jenkinson. Uh, you just you seem to have your pulse on on so much, and I think this is one of those um, conversations that we need to be having. So why don't we just start there? Maybe maybe tell us briefly about your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation, and and we're going to be doing this over Zoom with Smithsonian. Maybe tell us how you're going to use Zoom to engage our audience.
2: Well, the audience is gathered by Zoom, and I actually can't. See them, um, but I can. I know they're there. Then uh-huh. um, I I talk with Kathy Fuller, who's my moderator, and and I think I've done ten of these now or more. Yeah, yeah. The pandemic really opened this door, yeah, uh, and it's, you know changed everything. So now Zoom technology and its and its rivals um, make lots of things possible at a, at much less expense than ever before. So that's that's the joy of it. I'll have a PowerPoint um, and. It, and then twice during the two hours, uh, uh, there will be a break in which we take questions. People will, you know, text in their questions, and Kathy will sort them out and and, and put them to me. So I love the I love the format. My only um, my only disappointment is that I can't see the audience. Uh, when I do public perf- performances of any sort or lectures, I make sure that the house lights are on so I can actually watch people mm-hmm. respond. But anyway, so so the theme. Uh, is one that's very dear to my heart. You know, I'm really worried. I'm deeply worried about the future of the United States. Mm -hmm. You know, we're approaching our 250th birthday. Mm -hmm. Uh, That should be a time for reflection and celebration. Uh, It needs to be done honestly. And, you know, we need to look at ourselves, warts and all. But I think that we're so polarized now I'm going to use some shorthand here, but sort of the sixteen nineteen project on the one hand on the left, and then sort of Ted Cruz on the right, hmm. where there's no conversation anymore, it's just shouting it's just it's vilification, it's demonizing it's it, there's a belief now on each side that the other side is not truly American that that America belongs to whichever silo I'm in, and the the other people are either. You know, dangerous, bigoted, racist rednecks, or they are communist-inspired liberals who want to cancel uh, American culture and want to apologize for this country. And, and you and I know that that's not really true, that most of uh, the American people are centrists of one sort or another, and that we need, we, you know, we desperately need to have real conversations about real subjects. And if we can't be civil— then I don't see how we can possibly get anywhere that I, I, I'm schooled in the enlightenment. And the enlightenment's idea was that anything can be talked about mm-hmm. and that the good ideas will drive out the bad and that good sense will drive out nonsense. And I continue to believe that, but I don't think that that's as widely believed today as it used to be. It's, it's become a sort of zero sum game mm-hmm. and there's a lot of anger and rage in all of this, which I just frankly can't understand.
1: Thank you for that. I, I just couldn't couldn't agree with you more. I, I I think as a centrist, I find that you know, and, and as an older American, I I certainly um, am a believer, and I I see all the wonder that the country has created. My family are immigrants, and so I really do view this as a, as a wonderful. Um, a wonderful country. But I, I do know, just as you put it, there there are warts. And, and we've got to get into this in a way that's balanced, I think. Maybe give us your sense as to how we handle this balance. How do we celebrate on one hand, uh, you know, the country's history, but do so with a fair assessment of all the complexities, warts and all?
2: Well, I think that's since the 1960s, we've had a cultural revolution in the United States. I use that term deliberately um, that our way of seeing America has changed. So we've had women's studies and feminism. We've had uh, minority studies and we have queer studies. Uh, We have paid much greater attention now to the environmental cost of the American dream. Uh, There's a, there's a, wider lens that we wear now. There's a more inclusive lens that we wear now than mm-hmm. existed, say, in the time of Ozzie and Harriet and mm-hmm. leave it to be. That's all good. Mm-hmm. And that's been an amazing and important cultural revolution. But I think that it left many Americans behind. I don't think the universities did a very good job of bringing the public into the conversation. I, Frankly, I don't think that the academic world is very respectful of average Americans, I think that they look down on most Americans as as rubes and ignoramuses, and 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 that causes um, that condescension is is very well understood by the the people in the heartland, uh, who feel uh, betrayed by that, and and that makes them reactive rather than conversant, and so I think that. Some of this is, is because of the way in which these breathtaking cultural changes have occurred, without making any reasonable effort to bring the people along. So that that's part of it. And mm-hmm. so I I think the answer is we have to grant agency to everybody. You know I'm I'm going off on this 250th journey myself mm-hmm. in the next five years. I have an airstream. I'm going to uh, it's called listening to America. I'm going to go around the country and talk to people, famous people, and then. Um, uh, average people in campgrounds and in universities and in think tanks and in national parks and so on. And what I intend to do is to listen. And so, I, you know, I often meet people whose views are are dramatically different from my own. I'm not going to scoff. I'm going to listen, and I'm going to ask sort of Socratic follow-up questions mm-hmm. because there's always something behind whatever is the surface statement or surface opinion, there's, there's something, there's a frustration, there's a wound, there's a, a fear, there's a, a, a sense of righteousness or anxiety about where this country is heading. I think if we learn to listen to each other, I mean, really um, respectfully listen, uh, I think that people are ready to talk. And I think that they calm down once they realize that they are being heard and not just being sort of indulged at arm's length.
1: Amazing. That's really, I'm, I'm smiling here, Clay Jenkinson, because I just think of you in an airstream and I just think what a, what a wonderful way to put yourself into a position to talk and to listen in particular and have conversations that are meaningful around um, a significant anniversary for, for our country and, and, do you, you plan on talking about historical figures? Do you talk about issues of the day? Maybe tip us off because I'll I'll say this selfishly. I'd, I'd love to have you back and talk further about this. But I mean I'm I'm curious and just pursuing it for a moment, what what is the plan?
2: Well, I'd love to check in with you every couple of weeks on yeah. this, in, in <laughs> yeah. journey. I'm gonna start I'm gonna do John Steinbeck's Travels with wow. Charlie journey wow. first. So I'm gonna start in Long Island. I'm gonna to go to the tip of Maine. I'm gonna go across the northern tier of the countries of Seattle and then down to Monterey, where he was, um, you know, where his home is and then to San Diego over to Texas and new Orleans and then back up the East coast to to New York. That's the first of many journeys Then I'm going to do Theodore Roosevelt's conservation footprint around the country and I'll retrace the Lewis and Clark trail, but I'm just using these as frameworks Mm -hmm. on which to hang this set of um, concerns that I have. So here's what I'm going to do, Paul. I'm going to, when I meet somebody um, and, and we've gotten you know comfortable, I'm going to say, uh, finish this sentence. You can't understand America unless you understand X. Hmm. Um, and people, one, one person might say, well, religion. Or, or another person might say opportunity. Or another person might say race or the frontier um, or violence. You know i don't know what people are going to say but i'm eager that's a starting mm-hmm. question mm-hmm. i'm also going to say are we one nation do what what do we share a narrative of, of who we are and how we got here or are we now two or more nations and i'm going to say to people if you could do if you could if you could use an archimedean lever and put it somewhere to sort of to, to restore america to what you think it's Um, it is at its best, where would you start? Would it be education? Would it be uh, national service for everybody? Would it be, you know, I don't know. But I'm going to ask this series of sort of open-ended questions um, and let people then talk. And I'm going to listen and ask the follow-up questions to try to really hear them. And I think that my sense is that the people are really um, aching for some sort of healing process that Mm -hmm. I don't think anybody likes where we are Mm -hmm. except, you know, Matt Gates on the one hand and Mm -hmm. and somebody Mm -hmm. on the opposite of that. But but I think most people, most Americans are bewildered by this. Yeah. They are, they're, 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 they're hurt. Uh, they, they, they think, come on, America still matters. America, the the word America is, is still one of the world's magic words. We have a duty to live up to the promise of that word. And so I think most people are eager to talk, but they don't want to be talked at, and they don't want to be talked down to, and they don't want to be caricatured. And and many of these sort of travel books that you see, and I'll just name one, William Least Heat Moon's Blue Highways, which Mm -hmm. I enjoy. He goes out and, and there's sort of a, I feel a sort of condescending attitude towards people in the heartland that, you know, that they're quirky and and they they're and they're, and they're, and they're may be a little bigoted or they're a little rough but maybe they have a nugget of wisdom i don't agree with that at all i think that people are people uh and that america is a is a spectacularly diverse place and that it's my duty to go listen with real deep respect and you know that's harder than it seems as i'm sure you know
1: Hi, it's Paul. Do you love entertaining, informative, eclectic, insightful programs about culture, health, science, life, and everything smithsonian as part of our smithsonian associates interview series on radio and podcast we're introducing you to the new smithsonian associates streaming series smithsonian a non-profit organization is excited to present this new aspect of their 55 years as the world's largest museum-based educational program join us from the comfort of your home as we periodically interview smithsonian associate guest speakers Our audience here on radio and podcast can explore our website for more information, links, and details at notold-better.com. Thanks, everybody. We are with award-winning historian, author, public humanities scholar, and Smithsonian associate Clay Jenkinson. Clay Jenkinson's been a previous guest. Clay Jenkinson will be appearing at Smithsonian Associates coming up here pretty close, November 14th. The title of Clay Jenkinson's presentation is The Culture Wars, How Can We Lower the Temperature? I think that's such a great title. It's always so great to talk with you, Clay Jenkins. And I always learn something, and and I've learned something here today about your travels across America, your upcoming travels, your plans. Wonderful stuff. My goodness. Uh, Congratulations on on all of your work, of course. I think one of the things that has been in the news – Certainly not so much of late, but I think it's still on the minds of a, a lot of Americans, and that is this issue that we have with public statues, memorials, and and how they represent our history and, and how they do that inclusively. And so I wonder if you'd talk for a moment about how, how we might handle public statues because that can be one of those bellwether issues. That can be just this moment of lightning rod uh, difficulty, supercharged kind of uh, vitriol, all of these things around something that's so inanimate and and almost inconsequential, but not in many ways?
2: Well, this is really complex. So I'll say this. Number one, these need to be local decisions. Mm -hmm. There is not a one-size-fits-all national response to Confederate statues or to, you know, statues that that caricature Native Americans or Hispanic Americans. Uh, There is not a one-size-fits-all approach to this. So we need to defer to local democracy on this. You know, number two, everybody needs to be at the table, uh, every stakeholder. So this just can't be the town council uh, meeting to try to decide whether to keep up the statue of Stonewall Jackson. You need to have people from every constituency group, and they need to be brought in um, and and treated with great respect. Everyone's voice matters. These these need to be community-wide decisions, not decisions of the city council or the you know, the county board of supervisors. So that's the second thing. Everyone everyone has to be at the table. And third, you know, I'm a humanities scholar. Mm-hmm. And so my 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 motto came from one of my mentors, judgment is easy, understanding is hard. Mm-hmm. And judgment is easy, understanding is hard. So, you know, why was the statue put up of Buffalo Bill Cody shooting the last buffalo in Kansas? What, what, what did it signify when it was erected? What did people have in mind when they put it there? How have our attitudes changed mm-hmm. since then? What makes us think that we're right and they were wrong? You know, uh, wouldn't it be more useful in a way to use this as a, as a teachable moment to say when this was put up, um, nobody objected because it seemed like the right thing to do. But now we're a little squeamish about the slaughter of the buffalo in Kansas. And so we probably wouldn't put up such a statue today. But is it right to burn it down, tear it down, melt it down, put it in a warehouse? Is that, is that the best thing we can do? And, and number four, you know, I always try to keep this in mind, Paul. What will they say of us a thousand years from now? And you know, what makes us think that we're the enlightened ones? I certainly don't think that we're the enlightened ones. I think that we are making the same mistakes, only different, uh, that, that all cultures make. We have blindnesses. We have prejudices. There's a faddishness that sweeps through us, and one of those fads now is what I call the de-Stalinization of America. Then let's rip down all the offensive statues and signs, mm-hmm. and then what do we have? So, you know, if, if you go down this path, Jefferson has to go, slaveholder, clearly a racist in some sense of that term. If you go down this path, Winston Churchill has to go, imperialist um, with scathing attitudes towards um, uh, third world peoples and, and Indigenous peoples. If you go down this path, who will escape whipping? You know, Hamlet says, "Treat every man according to his Mm deserts," and who shall escape whipping? So I think we should be humble in the face of this, and I think it's our duty to try to understand. I'll I'll give you a really good example. Uh, The the American Museum of Natural History in New York uh, took down its statue group of Theodore Roosevelt. Roosevelt was on horse. On one side of him was a, a an African gun bearer, barefoot, standing. Uh, on the other side of him was a Native American barefoot, uh, and he was clearly in the in the sort of the moral of the statue group leading these indigenous people towards the civilization. Um, the American Museum of Natural History wrestled with this for many years. They did extensive research they they put up a a really extraordinary exhibit about it. and then eventually they decided, you know, it it does really have to go. But they did it after extraordinary deliberation. And one of their arguments, And one that I particularly admire is that they thought, well, that statue group of TR with indigenous people doesn't really say anything about the mission of the American Museum of Natural History. So it it was sort of an oddball thing to do, even when it was done. And so they carefully, and everyone was at the table. I mean, they did absolutely everything right. And they decommissioned it. They didn't melt it down. They didn't uh, attack Roosevelt. They just said, in our opinion, you know, statues go up. Sometimes statues come down. Um, that seemed acceptable to them, and it certainly seems acceptable to me, but I wouldn't use that to take down every Roosevelt statue in the country.
1: I always enjoy talking to you. I, again I'm smiling. I you know, I think as an educator I learned so much from you as a humanities scholar. And I wonder if you talk for a second about these extraordinarily complex figures in history like like Jefferson and, and some of these other public intellectuals. how How do educators, how do historians help me, help the public navigate and get through some of this so that we're understanding and so that we're educated as opposed to being divided?
2: Well, these are divisive things, you know, yeah. because if you take down a statue of Robert E. Lee in Charlottesville, uh, there are going to be people who feel that their own way of seeing life is being uh, sneered at and and demoted and discarded. And so they are not going to be cheerful about this. They might be more cheerful if they had been at the table in the first place and if they had been able to state their views and if they had listened to other arguments and there had been sort of an agreement that we will come to a consensus. So keeping keeping all the stakeholders in the conversation is is really important. I'll give you an example. So I just moderated a symposium in Western North Dakota on Theodore Roosevelt, and it was it was pretty tough on Roosevelt. And one of the talks by an eminent scholar, was a brilliant talk, uh, showed that Roosevelt really was um, a jerk. Uh, when it comes to native americans that he said awful things i won't repeat them and i I, and i and i had to say a couple of them from from the stage in this event and, and i can barely let the words come out of my mouth they're so awful that doesn't necessarily say everything there is to say about roosevelt and native americans and it certainly doesn't say everything we need to know about roosevelt so we need to realize that he was a man of his times when he did these, made these utterances, he was a very young man, and so something of a hothead. He later sort of matured into a, a, a more nuanced view of of, of American history. Uh, this was when Manifest Destiny was still um, you know, chugging through the veins of the American people, and so we you need to contextualize it and to, and to try to realize, to use the cliche, where they were coming from when mm-hmm. they said these things. So you know, or take Jefferson. I've been studying Jefferson now for 40 years, mm-hmm. and I've been Jefferson now for 30-some years. <laughs> right. So I know, I know him inside and out, as it were. <laughs> yeah. uh, there's no question in my mind that he was a racist. If by racist we mean that uh, African Americans, in his mind, were subordinate uh, both in their capacities and in their rights to white Americans, um, that's hard to say. But I think it's, it's undeniably true. We also know that he was a slaveholder, that he bought and sold slaves, including secretly, furtively, while he was the president of the United States. And of course, there's the Sally Hemings story, too. So this has to be acknowledged. You know, we, we, we can't pretend any longer that Jefferson was um, a reluctant slaveholder. He wanted us to believe that he was a reluctant slaveholder, and maybe he even was, but it didn't stop him from owning more than 600 human beings in the course of his life. And so we were in denial about this so long that when the reaction came in the 1980s, 90s, and so on, it it went too far the other direction, I think. Now he's being canceled in many quarters. I think it's now important for us to recenter Jefferson. And so I've created this thing I call the Asterisk Project in which I will never again talk about any of Jefferson's achievements without also acknowledging that they were made possible by enslaved people. So let me give you one quick example. He has this magnificent garden at Monticello, one of the world's most beautiful vegetable gardens, a thousand feet long. It's a terrace on the side of his mountain. When you go there, you gasp at its beauty and its fertility and the the genius of Thomas Jefferson, until you realize that, that that terrace was built by gangs of black slaves working tirelessly in grunt labor over several years to build a terrace on the side of a mountain. Mm-hmm. And so when you know that, you can't unknow that. Your admiration for that garden doesn't stop, but it's chastened now. It's, there's, there's, a, there's something of a cloud that attaches itself to it. And I think that's so important for us to acknowledge that the University of Virginia was built by enslaved people. That in, in, in Washington, D.C., when Jefferson had his famous dinner parties, um, enslaved people took your coat, uh, they served you, uh, they removed the h- human bodily waste from the site, they, they washed the floors, they cooked the food, they built the thing. Um, and so we need to always keep that in our mind. It doesn't have to be the center or the only thing we think about, but we can no longer pretend that Jefferson was Leonardo da Vinci and, oh, yes. There's this sort of issue that the, he was also a slaveholder. I think that we have to be more forthright. And so as we talk about the 250th birthday of the country, mm-hmm. it's going to have to be candid in some ways that's going to make us uncomfortable. Uh, I repeat, we're going we're to be made uncomfortable if we have an honest discussion of how this country got to be where it is. I live in North Dakota, so I'm talking to you today from lands that were sovereign to the Mandan and the Hidatsa, Whose lands were, were, were stripped from them um, by sometimes by treaty, more often by executive order. Um, and that's just not okay. That has to that, it's not that we're going to give the land back necessarily or leave the continent, but we have to acknowledge that if we want to be honest and candid about how we got here from 1492. And so I mean this this sounds pretty simple,, Paul, but it's not. Mm. Cuz there will be people who just automatically resist and say, "No way. You you there's, I I had I never heard an any Native American. I I've just I just own my property. I mean, don't tell me that we have something to atone for." I think that that the reaction is the reaction of people who are suddenly caught off guard and feel that their very way of seeing the world has been not only challenged but dismissed by know-it-alls.
1: Clay Jenkinson, I, it just is always such a pleasure to talk with you. I, I just have two final questions kind of kind of almost back to back. It, it, this is involved. it is complex. What's the role of cultural institutions what what's the responsibility that, for example, Smithsonian Associates plays in in lowering the temperature as you as you say, you know cooling this current heated climate? what 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 do some of these types of institutions do in order to respond to the debate but not polarize
2: I think the Smithsonian is doing a great job um you know I'm sure that there are instances uh, as, as in any institution where things can go wrong but on the whole from my observation the Smithsonian does a superb job and I'll tell you why it, it's linked to the taxpayer mm-hmm. you know the taxpayer has a role in this and if the Smithsonian put up a, an exhibit that said, American history has just been one damn moment of racism after the next, and that's all there really is to American history. The taxpayers would rebel and say, why are we funding this? And so I think that it's important, uh, uh, something, uh, you know, if you're watching the current, you know, largely insane debate that's going on in our major universities about Gaza and Israel, mm-hmm. there isn't, there isn't any check against extreme discourse or not a sufficient check and so I think democracy works. You know, mm-hmm. when uh, I remember back in the NEH days when uh, the Mapplethorpe photographs and, and, mm-hmm. and the Piss Christ photograph were getting funding and the people mm-hmm. said, why are we funding this? Yeah. And, and thought that that, that we know we don't want to give people the right to veto or to censor, but we do give them the right to be heard. And, and then the NEH was more careful after that. About what it funded, and I, and I think that's entirely appropriate. So I think the Smithsonian has a great advantage, as does the Library of Congress, and so on, because they have to respond, in some sense, to the will of, of the people. And I think that that really matters. If, if 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 culture means I get to do whatever I want, and the and 83 percent of the country just has to lump it, <laughs> then that should be private. Mm-hmm. That you know, then I should be doing that work myself. And if it finds a market, it finds a market. But if it doesn't. Uh, that's a warning to me and so I, I really think that uh, that the institutions need to think through everything that they do and say is this fair is this rigorous is are, are all voices being heard are we making making any inadvertent racist or sexist or misogynist assumptions here you know I, I think that if you think it through and have someone it's almost like in the Catholic Church at sainthood you have a devil's advocate who if you're going to create a saint the devil's advocate is is meant to find out whatever bad things can be said of that saint i think we need that if you neh or nea does a project or smithsonian i think there needs to be someone in the room who says have we really thought this through because one argument that could be made against this exhibit is xxxx Mm -hmm. i think that that will help i also think that we need to model civility and so I get rude questions from time to time, sometimes mm-hmm. extremely rude questions. And mm-hmm. I try always to swallow hard <laughs> to be civil in my response. And when I get hate mail, as I occasionally do, I write back always a civil response. And mm-hmm. amazingly, Paul, nine times, well, I'd say seven and a half times out of 10, the person who wrote the angry email writes back then and says, you know, I was i was just blowing off. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have. You're right. I should have been more civil. So I think that it's engagement based on real respect and without a sense of righteousness. I'm against righteousness in all of its forms. <laughs> so I think it can be done, but, it, but it's a discipline. And I think many of our elite universities have given themselves over to the least um, inclusive voices.
1: Clay Jenkinson, I, as I say, I just always enjoy talking to you. You, you always do, you, you, you're such a wise person. You have just this real breadth of understanding of, of kind of where we are. And so you, you motivate me to do better and, and to learn and, and have over our conversations. I wonder if you'd leave us with maybe just a final word about how, all of our audience, older adults, family members, uh, across the spectrum of, of our audience, how can we together bring about our insights into a conversation so that we really can learn from each other, grow, and not be so heated at this moment?
2: Well, I, I you know, not not to sound flattery, but I think you know,
1: sign up for Smithsonian
2: events mm-hmm. because I think mm-hmm. Smithsonian does a really terrific job at this, and the Zoom yeah. technology has a kind of a filtering and chastening effect. So, you know, there's no shouting. Uh, there may be sharp <laughs> opinions, but there's, but there's no, no shouting. Um, I also think that people need to, um, and this is so hard, but just take um, Israel and Gaza. Everyone has an opinion. Mm-hmm. Of course, most of us have a, are confused, but we have opinions. But most of our opinions are based on almost no actual evidence or understanding if we read a book or two about the history of israel and it's um it's hostile neighbors we would know more mm-hmm. but if you're taking your talking points from rachel maddow or from sean hannity mm-hmm. then you really haven't thought it through for yourself at all and you know we live in a time of breathtaking accessibility that, that i mean there are millions of books that are free on the internet. And then everything else is available on documentaries and on YouTube and so on. So anyone who wanted to know something about what's going on in Gaza today is in a position to do so. And if everyone would say, say five hours and watch a couple of of documentaries and maybe read a few articles and, and, and really kind of examine this and then, and then only, start to speak or pontificate about what must be done and who's to blame and and, 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 and how this comes out we'd be much better off but you know I, what I find in traveling the country Paul is that people are lazy now and they're largely just spouting talking points uh, and the talking points co- used to come from Rush Limbaugh and now they come from Tucker Carlson the talking points come from Rachel Maddow or Lawrence O'Donnell and some of those talking points are good but they 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 didn't. No one had to work at this. They just listened to it and took it to the coffee shop the next day. And you know what Jefferson had in mind for us is that we would all think for ourselves. That we would we would be an enlightened people. And that and and to be enlightened is hard work. I've been lucky. You know, I get to read for a living. So I have a library of 20,000 volumes here in the middle of North Dakota. I'm buried in books, too many books. I need a an annex. You
0: know,
2: help, please, please, somebody. I need a librarian, please. But but I'm lucky because I, I see the world through books. So I've been reading this book about Harry Truman. Um, it's called The Accidental Presidency, which is an outstanding book I just happened upon. And there's a whole section in it on the birth of Israel in 1947 and 1948. Wow. And now that I've read it, I'm in a somewhat better position to try to understand what's going on Mm -hmm. in Gaza at this moment than I was before I read that book. And so I just urge everyone to say, before I spout, (laughs) do I have any idea what I'm talking about? Or am I just taking derivatives from my favorite talk show hosts? And if you have to have a favorite, it should be someone like Michael Smirkanish. Mm-hmm. who, you know, prides himself on being a centrist. And I'll also say that um, that NPR and PBS, I think, are now doing the best media work in the country mm-hmm. on things like this. I think that the, they're, they're scrupulously fair-minded, uh, thorough, and the talking points are not five seconds, you know, they're 35 seconds. So I think there are ways we can do this, but it's a commitment. And the question is, you know, are you, Paul, willing to make the commitment? Am I, George or or Judy, living in Broken Bow, Nebraska, willing to make the commitment to know something before I talk? Mm-hmm. But if we are, things will calm
1: down. Clay Jenkinson, our guest today, award-winning historian, author, public humanities scholar, And presenting at Smithsonian Associates coming up, the title of Clay Jenkinson's presentation is The Culture Wars How Can We Lower the Temperature? We'll have links so that our audience can find out more information about Clay Jenkinson and his upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation, as well as all the rest of the work that Clay Jenkinson is doing. Uh, Clay, I'm going to look for a link uh, for your tour, and I hope to find it. If I don't find it immediately, I'll keep searching, but Congrats on, on all of this work, and we're going to listen, and we're going to be paying attention. But thanks so much for your generous time today. It is always so great to talk to you, and please, please, please come back.
2: Let's keep talking, Paul. My my, my website is ltamerica.org, listening to America, ltamerica.org. I've got my Airstream now. I need a Ford F-150, so I know someone out there wants to give me a beautiful black Batman-like okay. Ford F-150.
1: Let's I do know it. You'll,
2: I'll see you at the Smithsonian.
1: Yes. Thank you, Clay Jenkinson. We're going to be rooting for you on that Ford uh, F-152. So good luck on everything. Thank you, sir. Thanks, my friend. My thanks to Smithsonian Associate Clay Jenkinson. Clay Jenkinson will be appearing at Smithsonian Associates interview series coming up. So please check out our website and show notes today for more details. My thanks to you. My thanks... And my thanks to the Smithsonian team for all they do to support the show. My thanks to you, my wonderful audience here on Radio and Podcast. Please be well, be safe, and remember, let's talk about better, the Not Old Better Show. Thanks, everybody. We will
0: see you next week. Thanks for joining us this week on the Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast. To find out more about all of today's stories or to view our extensive back catalog of previous shows, simply visit notold-better.com. Join us again next time as we deep dive into some of the most fascinating real-life stories from across the world, all focused on this wonderful experience of getting better, not just older. Let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast.